Well, we are going to continue in our study of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 5 is where we are, and we're going to talk about fishing for men. So, here it is. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. You go, well, where is that? Well, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So you may have seen this before. So this would be um, a picture of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, so you're, you're north looking south, and uh, Capernaum would be uh, further over here where Peter uh, lived. And this is called Sower's Cove. Um, they suspect that this is where Jesus would have put out his boat, you know, out here, and uh, the crowds is kind of like a little amphitheater. Notice the road is above sea level, so it would go down toward the sea. So it would be a kind of a natural amphitheater. Um, now you say, is this for sure where Jesus preached? Well, he didn't leave a little sign saying, I preached here. But it makes sense that that's where it would have taken place. So he's teaching out here. The crowds are listening. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night. And took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You can almost hear Peter going, oh, preachers think they know it all, right? Now he's telling me how to fish. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, um, I, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but here's a question. What's the point of this miracle? Is it just a cool fish trick? Or is there a deeper significance to it? In John's Gospel, John's Gospel uh, is built around seven miracles, but they're not called miracles. John specifically calls them signs. So a sign is a supernatural happening, but it's a supernatural happening that points to something else. There is significance in a sign. So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's not just, oh, hungry people need food. Jesus then points to himself and says, I'm the bread of life. So it's a sign pointing to him. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, indicating that he will one day raise all from the dead. Okay? So what's the significance of the great catch of fish. Well, let's keep going. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish 
that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, all right, here it comes, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. So the significance of this is tied to their new calling now. Right? In Mark's gospel, it's put this way, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I'm changing your calling from catching fish to now catching men. And before you can say, oh no, I'm not good at that. I would be a horrible evangelist. I'm horrible at, at leading people to have faith in Christ. Uh, no, no. I think Jesus is saying, before you can say I'm horrible at this, remember who's in charge of the catch. Right? Just like I can be in control of the fish, you're not doing this alone. Go make disciples of all nations. But we're not good at it. Of course you're not good at it, but you don't do it alone. There's a, there's a degree of faith involved in going and, and sharing the gospel and believing that God's got to be working in the hearts of the fish out there. Right? Have you ever seen this miracle that way? Now, bigger question would be this. Have you embraced the call to be a fisherman for Jesus? Do you, in, in our, our worship this morning, we talked about the fact that Jesus uh, says, if you're going to call me Lord, then do what I say. Here's, here's the question. Have you embraced a new identity as a fisherman? Do you see it as, as your calling now to lead people to Christ. Now, there's a, uh, a recent survey that uh, all pastors are talking about. Um, here it is. Nearly half, 47%, of practicing young Christian adults, so I'm not a young Christian adult. I'm uh, in my 50s, but young Christian adults, so that would be 20 to 40-year-olds. These are churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives, so half of them believe that evangelism is wrong. Specifically, they believe it is, quote, wrong to share one's personal faith with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So, that could be a problem that half of young Christians... Not only, you know, I, I think the older Christians might say, well, we believe we should do this. We're maybe not doing a good job at it, but we believe we should. Half of younger Christians don't even believe they should. They, in fact, they think it's, it's wrong. So what in the world is going on here? Well, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to, um, to raise five objections that a Christian might have to fishing. And by fishing, I mean sharing your faith with others on a personal level. Five objections to doing evangelism. 
And um, so, so let's just raise these objections. Maybe these have seeped into your head. Maybe not even formally, but maybe informally. Maybe they're just kind of uh, floating around up there and you've kind of cooled your, your zeal for sharing Christ. Okay? So let's, let's raise these five objections. One is I have respect for people. So the, the thinking goes like this. The Bible says, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. I don't want people pushing things on me. I don't want people trying to convert me to their political party or to their worldview or to their religion. So if I don't want people doing that to me, I'm going to love them enough to do the same In other words, I'm going to embrace the value of cultural sensitivity. You have your culture. I have my culture. I don't like it when you try to change my culture. So I will not impose that upon you. Okay. Now, um, before we too quickly dismiss that value... Let's first admit something. We Christians too often have made Christianity not just about Jesus, but about our subculture. Okay? In other words, hey, become a Christian, and that means schooling decisions and political candidates and what news station you watch and a million other lifestyle choices that the the subculture baggage that we carry right now there are ethical implications to all those things but a lot of those things can get in the way of us inviting people to Jesus, right? Our subculture can be a distraction to talking about Jesus, right? This was a problem in the early church. In fact, it was really the first crisis that happened in the early church. God started in Jerusalem with Jews, who had a culture. They had, and and this wasn't just a random culture, these were uh, cultural rules that God gave to them in the Old Testament. They had certain foods that they could eat and they couldn't eat. They had a certain calendar that they kept. Right? Uh, the, The big one, they had the circumcision rule. So, God created a people with a culture. So now, the Jews have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ and their commission to go into the world and spread the gospel. And they go into Gentile territory. So now, um, on our Tuesday men's Bible study, by the way, men, if you're free on Tuesday afternoons, we have a Bible study, all right? Let, let me know. We'd love to have you come, okay? Um, we're studying Galatians. 
And there's this incident that took place in Galatians. So Paul is writing this. He says, but when Cephas, that's another name for Peter. So when Peter came to Antioch, Antioch's in Gentile territory. So Peter goes to a Gentile church, right? When, when Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So, so Paul's calling out Peter for something he did. What, what did he do? For before certain men came from James, before certain men came from Jerusalem to Antioch, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. And guess what they were eating? Probably some of George's pulled pork, right? There was, there was uh, probably bacon involved in this, this Peter eating with the Gentiles because uh, the Gentiles ate pork, but that was unclean in the mind of a Jew. That was a cultural barrier that God purposely set up in the Old Testament. Okay? So he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, the people from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In other words, Peter was eating pork, but then those who said, uh, wait a minute now, this gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't get in just by believing in Jesus. You also have to keep the Jewish cultural laws. You've got to eat a certain way, and you've got to get circumcised. You've got to keep the, the calendar that the Jews keep. In other words, there were some who were making it about the culture, not about the cross. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, a Jew, was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, here's the big picture. I think the younger generation does have a value that says, let's respect other people's culture and let's not impose our secondary cultural things upon them. In other words, if you want to become a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus and the following list of rules. I think we need to be able to delineate out that which is essential to the gospel from that which is cultural baggage and not impose that baggage on people okay um, some of us are just so enmeshed in our culture that we don't even we, we don't even know there's a difference in fact we may even equate certain cultural things with the gospel what is essential for salvation are we presenting that or our cultural baggage right you say, uh, even, you know, even, even in the church, there are different cultural traditions. Um, I, in fact, if I could share this, Johnson once asked me uh, uh, before the new year, he said, when is your watching service? Do you remember that? And I said, our what? And he said, yes, where, what, your watching service. When is your watching service? I said, uh, well, 10 o'clock, we have a service every Sunday. He goes, well, in Africa, on the, the new year, the Christians gather and they pray in and they watch for the new year to come in, right? We're pagans. We don't do that. 
Never heard of it. <laughs> Can't imagine what he thought of us, right? Um, but even in the church, there are different traditions, and I think we have to say, that's interesting. Rather than making a judgment, we, we say, that's, that's interesting, but it's not primary to the gospel. All right. So, point number one is this. Um, a person may say, well, I have respect for other people. I don't want to change their culture. I think the response is, be careful that you aren't dumping cultural change as essential to the gospel. Um, then secondly, realize that, th that you can go too far and say, well, I love people so much that I'm not going to share the gospel with them. Ah, if, if, if eternity is real, heaven and hell is real, are you really loving them? Okay. Let's go to second, the second uh, objection. It, evangelism, fishing for men, has been done really poorly. And I don't want to be associated with how poorly it's been done. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Now, again, let's first learn from this. There has been a lot of bad evangelism. And apologetics. Now, I love apologetics. Apologetics is learning how to defend the truth of the Bible and the Christian faith. Okay? But so often, presenting the gospel and defending the faith has been done kind of like trying to win a political argument where we set up the good guys and the bad guys and we get kind of sarcastic toward the other side. How do you think that wins people over to Jesus? You might even intellectually convince somebody, but be so unattractive in the way you defend the faith that you've won the argument but lost the person. So, yeah, evangelism, uh, let's acknowledge that it's been done poorly. It's, it can be done this way. Um, you just kind of force the conversation to spiritual things. You get your foot in the door, and then you give your spiel before they kick you out. Right? It can be done that way. In fact, part of this survey that I mentioned... Um, gives another statistic. Here's the other statistic. More than six in ten non-Christians or lapsed Christians say they would be open to talking about faith matters with someone who listens without judgment. I'll come back to that word judgment in, in, in a minute. But what this is saying is two-thirds of the non-Christians out there are willing to talk about faith matters. Okay, but, okay, and, the, and the, the top value that they value is, is I, I'm going to highlight the word listen, but they put listen without judgment. That's the top quality they value. But only one-third see this trait in Christians they know personally. So as they look at us, they say they see two out of three of us as being judgmental. Okay. 
Now, I know immediately somebody's going to say, well, the gospel's going to judge. The gospel is about sin. And it's going to judge. It's going to convict. Absolutely true. But do you see a difference between letting the gospel, letting the Holy Spirit, letting the scriptures convict, and you and me being judgmental, in other words, kind of setting ourselves up as uh, holier than thou, as I'm right, you're wrong, rather than co-sinners, I'm in the same boat as you, it can be turned into a judgmental attitude. Okay? Now, let me just, um, let's go back to the, uh, to the boat where Jesus does the miracle. And prior to that, Peter has been fishing all night. He's heard Jesus. He was probably there at the baptism when Jesus was baptized. He's heard Jesus probably preach in synagogues. But now, Jesus does this fish miracle, and what's Peter's response? He says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. What about catching fish convicted Peter of his sin. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, um, gives a good analogy. He talks about a, uh, a, a pro golfer who was asked uh, to, to play in a foursome with, uh, this was a long time ago, President Gerald Ford, Arnold Palmer, and Billy Graham. All right, so let me, let me read this. One of the leading golfers on the professional tour was invited to play in a foursome with Jerry Ford, Jack Nicholas, Billy Graham. After a round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to this golfer and said, hey, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? The pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing his religion down my throat. With that, he turned on his heels and stormed off heading for the practice tee. His friend followed the angry pro to the practice tee. The pro took out his driver and started to beat out balls in fury. His neck was crimson and it looked like steam was coming from his ears. His friend said nothing. He just sat on the bench and watched. After a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. He settled down. His friend said quietly, Was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro heaved an embarrassing sigh and said, No. Actually, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. So R.C. Sproul goes on to say, Billy Graham is so identified with the things of God that just his very presence was enough to convict or, let's say, expose this golfer's heart. Now, the golfer responded in anger, Peter responded in repentance. Right? But I think the, the lesson here is when the topic turns to Christianity and the person is willing to talk about the gospel and the Bible and you get to the cross, guess what? The issue of sin is going to be in the air 
Now, you may want to get into specific sins and, and uh, they may have question about it, uh, but just the very topic itself, if the Holy Spirit is working, should produce conviction. Let's let the Holy Spirit do His work and let's not let our judgmentalism get in the way. Okay? Not calling for us to back off on the truth of the gospel, calling us for or I'm calling for us to back off on our barrier to actually having people meet Jesus. Alright? Let me give you a a third objection. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at evangelism and it's not my gift. Um, now, I do think some people have the gift of evangelism. I think my wife has it. She's just talking to people about Jesus all the time. Okay, um, Watch out. If you get in on a, on a train ride with her into Chicago, you will be led to the Lord. Even if you're a Christian, she'll lead you again. Um, but, as with many things, there are gifts and then there are responsibilities. I think we all have the responsibility to be fishers for Jesus. Right? Now, um, I think he knows that we're going to say, I'm not good at this. I am not articulate. I'm not good at evangelism. And I think that's where you go back to the story and you go, wait a minute. If he was sending us out there on our own, we're in trouble. But he's in the boat with us. And just as he is in control of the fish in the Sea of Galilee, do you think he's in control of the hearts and the minds of other people? Right? You're not on your own. In fact, the Great Commission, this is the end of Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's important. What's he saying? I am the greatest authority in the universe. I'm above everything. Okay. So now, now that I'm in authority and you are calling me Lord, here's your commandment. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you go, what? how can we do that? That's a tall order. That's why this last part is so important. Teaching them to observe, observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm not sending you out in the boat on your own. I am with you. Just like I was with Peter in the boat, I am with you, especially when you obey this commission to fish for people. I, I think if we would just remind ourselves that the minute we walk out the door, the minute we go to work, when we're on, talking on the phone, when we're, we're on, online, that we are representing Him and He goes with us. Right? Um, I debated whether to get into verses like this, but John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
he always gets his man. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then there's this one. What do you do with this one? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All the ones that had been appointed to eternal life, guess what? They believed. Now, um, you've heard me talk before about the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Uh, Both Calvinists and Arminians believe that there's a group of people who will come to faith. Okay? Arminians, Calvinists believe that in eternity past, God chose certain individuals and they will come to faith in Christ. Arminians believe the same thing. They just believe that in eternity past, God looked into the future to see who would believe and then he backed up and those are the people that he wrote down and they will come. But both sides believe there's a group of people who will be drawn to Jesus. Okay? So regardless of whether you hold to Calvinism or Arminianism, guess what you need to believe? There's a group of people who will be drawn to Jesus. Now go get them. How? Open your mouth. Spread some seeds. See if they nibble. And then see if you can invite them to talk about spiritual things. And listen to them. Listen to where their heart is. And ask them, can I share with you what I've discovered? But there's a confidence here. Hopefully what you're getting is you're not fishing on your own. Jesus goes with you. I always like to, to, to be reminded of the story of Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, and God sends an angel to him. And uh, the angel says, there's a message you need to hear. And you need to hear it from a guy named Peter. He's a Jewish guy. He's up in Caesarea. Send for him. So Cornelius sends some soldiers. Meanwhile, Peter's up on the roof in a trance <laughs> during prayer time. He's having a quiet time. And God gives him that vision of the of the the unclean food coming down, and he gets it. Oh, I can talk to Gentiles now. So uh, these soldiers take Peter down to talk to Cornelius, and Peter shows up. And this is his, this is his opening illustration. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew, me, to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, I think you're unclean, but God's making me come here. God's told me not to think that way. I still kind of think that way, but here's his opening line. So when I was sent for, for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. What What do you want? That is the rudest gospel presentation. (laughs) All my life I've believed you are unclean and disgusting. God let down pigs from heaven and said, eat. Then I realized, oh, he was talking about you. (laughs) Okay, now that I'm here, what do you want? (laughs) 
So he preaches the gospel and says, well, Peter was still saying these things. Now, now don't forget this. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. It's not Peter's magnificent gospel presentation. It's the Holy Spirit. And they become believers. Okay? How would it change even tomorrow when you go to work? How would it change if you really believed you weren't out there on your own? but the Holy Spirit goes with you. Okay? Now, let me raise two more quickly. How is it fair? You know, when I, when I was growing up, back in the dark ages, before the internet, before there were 320 million people in America, and most people grew up either Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, or some form of Christianity. My choice was, is Catholic or Protestant right? Today, we live in a different country, in a different world. The, the question now is, how can Christianity be the only way? Right? How is it fair that, that you Christians think you have the only way? Now, we would quickly come back and say, well, it's not just Christians. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's making that exclusive claim. Right? Peter in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay? But still... The younger generation of Christians says, I see it, I see that this is true, but how is it fair? Okay. Now, um, I've heard sermons where the, the response to this question goes like this. Well, if you and your children are dying of some disease and the medical missionary shows up and says, here's penicillin that will save you, are you going to refuse to take it just because that penicillin is not available to everyone in the world? Now, maybe some people will go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I don't think that's a good, a good analogy. There's a difference between humans having a limited supply of penicillin and an almighty God who isn't limited by distribution issues. So does that really satisfy you? Does that answer satisfy you? Take the penicillin. This is no time to argue. But how fair is it that the gospel is the only way in a world where not everybody has the gospel. Another way to phrase it is this. Is God really going to send people to hell just because they don't have equal access? Now, that can be broken into two separate issues. One, those who don't have the same amount of access that we do to the gospel... And then secondly, those who have no access to the gospel. Okay? So, so let me address the first one. 
What about those in cultures that don't have the same amount of access that we have to the gospel? Well, there are amazing stories of people who are raised in other cultures and other religions where in spite of all the cultural pressure, they hear the gospel, the limited gospel, and they come to faith in spite of their cultures, in spite of their family. Caleb's first roommate at Moody, uh, Mitham. Mitham, we call him Mittens. Um, he's the only believer in, from his village in India. You say, well, how did, how did it... He heard the gospel, and he believed. What about Cornelius? God sent an angel to prepare his heart for the message. In the Old Testament, the queen of Sheba had heard that there's a king in Israel with such wisdom that he must be from God. So she traveled all the way from Ethiopia to, uh, to Israel by caravan to hear the gospel. Right? So um, you, you, could, you could ask the question this way, uh, or you could, you could answer the question this way. Just because there's a flood of gospel light doesn't mean people are going to believe. America's flooded with gospel light, but does everybody believe? No. And there are those who have just a flicker of gospel light, and they can believe. Uh, I think I've shared this before. Uh, when I was a pastor up in Wisconsin, they recorded the sermon. This was back when you made tapes. And they made copies of tapes, and there was a family in the church who had a relative who lived in Greece, and somehow these tapes from this little dinky church in Appleton, Wisconsin, made it over to Greece. And there was a whole group of people who were in a, uh, a Greek church but didn't really get the gospel who would listen and argue with me about whether it was right or wrong. And a guy came to faith, and out of the blue one day I got a, uh, an email from him saying, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ because of a tape of yours. It wasn't even a strategic plan. It just God got the tape into the right hands of the, of the guy. Right? So what about those who don't have equal access? I think we want to give everybody equal access, but God's able to get his message to people. What about those who have no access? You know the guy on the island who's never heard the gospel. Never had a missionary. Um, here's where I, I can't talk about the God of the Bible without presenting him as the God who is the one who's in control of the heart. So if the guy on the island truly has a seeking heart, God will get the gospel to him. So here's the promise uh, in Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And when God stirs a person's heart, he is able to get the gospel to him. Uh, as we saw, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never, I will never cast out. Now, um, 
How, how could he do it? I think he could do it through a dream. He could do it through an angel. He could do it through a vision. But I don't want us to get lazy and rely on that. Because the Great Commission is to actually go and proclaim the gospel. You know, it is interesting that when God sent the angel to Cornelius, the angel didn't preach the gospel. The angel said, send to Peter. And then Peter got the vision, and then he matched the two up, so the human proclaimed the gospel. And when Peter retells the story, here's what he says. And he told us, Cornelius, how he had seen the angel standing in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. In other words, the angel didn't preach the gospel. He said, send to Peter, and Peter brought the message. So all that to say, I think you can rest assured that God's in control of the heart and he can get the gospel to people. Having said that, let's not get lazy and say, oh, let's let the angels do it. Okay? One last uh, objection. And, and this is one you hear all the time. Well, maybe different religions are just different roads that lead to the same God. I, I googled that phrase and found this picture of different roads all leaning to the top of the mountain. Okay. Um, here's the problem with that. I don't think you need to be a student of world religions to know that the different world religions are mutually contradictory in their essence. You don't, you don't need to be a student of world religions. All you need is, is to know one principle of logic, the law of non-contradiction. So, for example, Buddhism is atheistic. They don't believe in a personal God. Christianity believes there is a personal God. How do they both lead to the same God? Right? There are monotheistic religions. Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam. So there's one God. Hinduism says there are millions of gods. Which is it? Both can't be true. Christianity says there's one God and he's three people. He's three persons. Islam says that's blasphemy. God doesn't have a son. We say Jesus is actually the son of God. Judaism says no. No, he, a human is not, is not God. These, these cannot be all true at the same time. Now here's, here's the real problem with putting Christianity on the same level with other world religions. The goal is Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That verse doesn't say that the, that the goal is for everybody to believe in a God. 
but to believe and to experience the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shines brightest when you understand what God did for us on the cross. In fact, all other world religions lower the glory of God by basically saying, you can earn your way to heaven. Right? That's not a, that doesn't glorify God. The glory of God shines forth when we see a bloody man hanging in agony on a cross. And that man is God. And he in his love died on that cross so we could be forgiven and reconciled to Him. That's the glory of God. To disregard that and say you can earn your way to heaven, live by the five pillars or the tenfold path, or that's really not achieving the goal of glorifying God. Our goal should be to cover the earth with the truth of the gospel. So all peoples cry out and say, holy, holy, holy. They all cry out and say, Jesus is Lord. Right? So, um, hopefully, if these five objections are banging around in your brain and it's really pulled you off of, of trying to introduce others to Christ. Hopefully this is a, a booster shot uh, to encourage us to get out there and throw the net. And remember, Jesus is with you in the boat. All right, let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you that you go with us. You don't just send us out into the lake on our own, but you have commissioned us. You go with us. You draw the fish. So Lord, I pray that uh, you would renew in us a desire um, to spread your glory all over this planet. Lord, I think of, of our missionaries in Africa, in uh, eastern China. Um, Lord, use them in different ways, with different methods to uh, cast the net and may you be glorified. Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room, may we think about our people at work or our neighbors or our family who don't know you. Um, Lord, may we not be overbearing May we respect people, but may we, may we desire to see you glorified in their lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.